0: I'm Jim Minns and you're listening to Minimal. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Richard McHugh SC. Richard is the author of The Cutting, which is available in all good bookstores right now. Okay, Richard McHugh, author of The Cutting, which is out now in all bookstores everywhere. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Appreciate it. Um, thanks for having me, Jim. No, that's great. That's great. Look, I've, it's a fantastic book. It reads at a lightning pace and it's told through the perspective of four characters. Um, now, I haven't been familiar with your prior fiction, but what, is this a decision that you were always intending to make, telling a story through four characters, or why did you make this particular decision?
1: Uh, it, there were actually five originally. Oh, okay. It's one of those funny things that you, you, you take on something, you, you're too ambitious with it, um, you lose control of it, and then you have to p- pair it back a bit, which is what happened with this one. Sure. And and I I, I had I started out with the idea of the four characters, or the, the five originally, and that, that was the plan right from the start, but the funny thing about this book was I, I didn't have a sure ending to it when I started. I didn't have a really clear idea of how it was going to end, and I think that was part of the reason, that, as I said a second ago, mm. I lost control of it a little bit in the writing, because... There were so many possibilities when you've got four main characters and, and four different stories running in, in different directions but then come back and intersect. You, you can actually, you know, something that i learned out of the whole process, which was different from the first book I did where I, where I had a very clear idea at the start where I was going to win, you can actually lose your way a little bit. And so a good lesson for me out of this was you're probably better off to have, have a clearer ending before you start because otherwise the editorial process, um, can be quite challenging, which it was in this case. I mean, it, it was. I mean, you said a minute ago it reads um, quickly, sure. and, and that was partly partly the result of a huge amount of work that had to be done in the edit to, to bring it back under control. So it was, it was a really interesting journey for me, and then at times quite a painful one. I have to
0: tell you. Mm. Well, just on your ending. I mean, it's it's quite a dramatic ending. Uh, the story in itself. Um, did you have more than one ending or was that is, is by process of elimination that's where you ended up after, you, you know, you'd taken the characters on their journey?
1: In, in the first draft, the ending was completely different. Right. Um, and, and without giving something away to people, someone who dies in the first version lived. So okay. okay. <laughs> it, it, it was quite different. And then the ending, I, I found when I got to that ending uh, and in the edit went back to, to look at the way the the, the story kind of bent I thought no nah, this isn't really very satisfying mm-hmm. and, it, and it tied in with something that had really interested me from the experience I had of writing the first book in, in the first book which was called Charlie Anderson's General theory of lying mm. there were two main characters a husband and a wife and the, the husband is morally compromised which would be the neutral way of putting it and, and a really interesting thing happened that at the at the end of that book, um, he he manages despite all of the things that he's done he manages to hang on to his job his wife and his girlfriend and, and that ended up resulting in quite a few readers saying oh this this isn't this isn't the ending that i want out of this book mm. and, it, and it surprised me at the time because i thought well th- this is actually the most realistic thing that would happen to a character like this he, he, he might be a bit battered he might be a bit bruised but uh, resourceful, capable, um, and, and somewhat ruthless people tend to survive. And I thought that was a more realistic ending. But, of course, what people want in their fiction is actually fiction. They mm. want the good to be rewarded, and they want the, the wicked to be punished. And one of the things that I wanted to play with a little bit in this second book was that idea of whether or not the person gets what they deserve at the end. And I, I don't want to invite you to give away the ending of this.
0: Second, Definitely not.
1: But but, but, but to me, there was a question, well, do you find that satisfying? Do you not? Um, and, and what does it make you think about your own way of approaching the book um, that you have a particular response at the end? So it was very, very much something I wanted to explore, and that was part of the reason why I changed the ending.
0: Yeah, okay. I mean, well, that's really an interesting perspe- perspective to take from because obviously your day job is uh, you're a barrister, you're a practicing barrister senior counsel. When you say uh, a character, for for example, from your first novel, Uh, that's your definition of where a character facing uh, those uh, events in their lives would end up. Do you think you're looking at that from a perspective of, well, in my day job and and the briefs that I'm given, this is where the people that I deal with who are facing these situations do end up? Is that your perspective that you draw from?
1: It it certainly informs my perspective. I mean, the experiences that you have in everyday life, but for me, especially in work, definitely inform my worldview, and that ends up showing up in the book um, at, at some point. But one of the, the really interesting things I learned in that first book is people often say you should write what you know. And and there was actually one scene in that first book where somebody had to go off and see a lawyer. And, and the first draft of it, was probably the dullest thing in the whole book because, of course, if you know something too well, it, it kind of takes the invention out of it. It takes the creativity out of it. And and I found I, I was quite keen in the second book not to have any lawyers anywhere near it. Right. Which I succeed, succeeded. You sharing. have. <laughs> so, so it's true that your experiences will inform how you feel about the characters and what you think is real and what will make the characters real and and the way they engage with the experiences they have in a way that's convincing to people. Um, That certainly comes from experience they have at work. But but at the same time, as I say, I was very keen to to keep my actual work far away from it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What's really interesting about the book is that in one instance you are in Fairfield and you're living and breathing the the Fairfield uh, surroundings, the Iraqi bakeries and the, the smells and the sights, and then within the flick of a page you're in Princeton, New Jersey, and then in Paris, and then back to Zetland. Well, how much how, That's – I've never experienced that in a book before, and I thought it was so intriguing I had to ask you about it. What's physical research went into your locations? Are these just places you know, you've, you've passed through, yeah. you've had some experience with?
1: Most of them I know pretty well and, and it's interesting that you've identified the place because to me the places in the book are all tied up with social class as well mm-hmm. and, and the experiences of the people. Maybe that's something we should come back to in a minute but the, the places were really driven by how I wanted to locate people socially because it's something I, I think is really interesting in Australia and that we don't talk about nearly as much as we used to it and, and as much as I think we should which is about money and class really. And so that, that, that was what drove me to be interested in the places. But the actual research that I did was um, Princeton, as it happens, I've never been to. Princeton, I've never been to. Okay. I've, I, lived in the, I lived in the United States for a couple of years, very close to Princeton in New York. Um, Paris, I've lived in um, for um, stretches. I, I had eight months in Paris a couple of years ago. And that whole sequence in Paris which is quite gothic. It's pretty different from, from a lot of the rest of, of this book, but that whole sequence I wrote when I was there. Okay. Uh, and living around the corner from the place where that, that scene happens. And then um, Zetland, I've known plenty of people who've lived in Zetland, although I never have myself. Mm-hmm. And then um, the, the Pilbara is one of the other places mm. where things happen. And I've done. I've never actually had to go there, but I've had to research it a lot, actually, for work. Mm. Um, case that I was in once was about the whole history of the iron ore exploration phase in the sixties and seventies, and and what happened with that. So, so I was familiar with that. And then um, Sydney is, you know, Sydney Bronte is um, by by the ocean is one of the places where I grew up, so I know that very well. Mm. Um, and I'm just trying to think, was there anywhere else on your list that I haven't covered?
0: I don't know. I just looked at the reason I asked is just, I'm like, I went, we're literally in Princeton and then Paris from Fairfield at one instance in the book. And I thought, I've never experienced that in a book before. Um, and I'm actually someone who, I mean, I have a family member who actually went to Princeton. So I was able to get physical, subconscious place, uh, sort of footsteps, I could place my footsteps on location in the scenarios that you're talking about. And of course, Paris as well, lucky enough to have visited at once instance and lucky enough to have done some work out at Fairfield. So I knew from my own footsteps and my own past where we were. at every. Lo- and I don't know whether or not I'm just some sort of, you know, <laughs> test, uh, lucky test case example. But I just, I'd never experienced that. I'm like, I know these places. I've been there. But that's
1: great. For me, that's great as a writer because one of the things you're trying to achieve is not just that the characters are convincing to people, but that the settings are. Yeah. And um, my partner says she finds it very visual, the stuff that I write. And, and I don't perceive it that way as I'm writing it. But it, it's always good to hear that somebody says, well, would you describe that place I really could picture it and it was real for me
0: yeah no I really enjoyed your the way you write um, it was not expected it was very it's it's not it's not dialogue heavy which um, which I tend to sort of favor but that's not necessarily that doesn't necessarily mean that I didn't enjoy it I found like it's really poetic language what's some of your um, what's some of your history there and your education there in terms of learning how to write in such a in such a way um,
1: well so I, I Always wanted to write from when I was young. In, in fact, um, in, in, a, in, a, in an odd way, inspired by Tim Winton, um, okay. whose when, when writing I've never been particularly fond of, which is a terrible Australian <laughs> impression to make. But, but the, the, it, it comes from a book that I had to do when I was at school, which was one that he'd written, and for which he'd won the Vogel Australian Prize, which was a prize for an unpublished manuscript. It still exists as a prize. It's a fantastic Australian institution. So you have to be under 35. Um, and it's an unpublished manuscript. And when I was at school, I thought, "Oh, look, I, you know, here's this Tim Winton book. How hard can it be?" And obviously, if we can do that, and I'll have a go. And sure. so, when I was at uni, I, I entered the Vogel Award. Uh, Did, didn't win it, but I managed to make it to the shortlist. Yeah. And that was when I was about 21 or 22, and I thought, "This is this is a great experience." I mean, the, the actual process of writing itself is. A fabulously creative thing, but it's very immersive. Like You have to throw yourself into the characters. and So so that was a, a manuscript that never got published, but that's now 30 years ago. And then off and on since then, I'd started different things and never thought they were good enough to complete. But the first book that was published, which is 2015, um, I started writing that in about 2010, I think, 2011, 2012, and, and kind of kept going with it. And then the first... 30 or 40 or 50 pages of that uh, I managed to give to a friend who who had started working as an agent, and and she's still my agent now. It's a woman called Cheryl Arkell, who who also runs something called Better Reading, which is a very um, big book-focused website for Australian readers. Mm. And she said, you know, I think you can write. You should keep going with this and make an effort. And it's one of those funny things where you, you often only need a little bit of a push to keep going with something. And I thought, no, I really do want to complete this book. And, and so I, I finished that one and that was then um, picked up by Penguin and now i happy to publish it. And then at that point you think, okay, well now I actually am I'm a writer. Mm. The identity thing is as well as you know, you're know, you a lawyer or you're a parent or whatever else you do, whatever lens you see yourself through, that then becomes part of your identity as well. And it's, it's kind of liberating and also empowering to, to have that sense of yourself. And then you think, well, then I'll write another book or I'll, I'll write another. So that's how I, I got to the point that I'm at now. It's very difficult to, to fit in with all of the, the legal practice. Right. So that, that's a completely separate topic. Well, but on the question of how, of how I write, which is I think your actual main question, um, I, I just write what it seems right for the scene. But okay. There's one, there's one chapter, I think, a short chapter in the book, which is um, Justine and Alan, who are brother and sister, or half-brother and half-sister, and and that one is almost entirely dialogue and nothing else. And and that was kind of, it was almost an experiment to see, can I write a chapter in which there's nothing but dialogue and how will that go? So it's it's definitely fun to mix it up, but um, I I wouldn't say that I, I particularly was taught to write it any particular way at all.
0: Okay. That's interesting. Look, I've spoken on this show to Richard Beasley, who's someone obviously that I draw a parallel with you in that he's also senior counsel and is a published author of fiction. He has said to me that um, he, doesn't consider, consider, he doesn't consider his writing to be his profession, obviously, it's that it's, it's, a, it's a hobby. It's a hobby that he's lucky enough to engage in, but that it remains a hobby. What's your view?
1: Well, first of all, um, I know Richard, and he's a lovely guy. He, he's and he's been doing it for longer than I have. Um, I, I would probably say I have to agree with it. Um, to think of it as something that you could survive on economically, particularly in, in a city that's expensive to live in, city, in you would have to be one of a very lucky few. And so, to, to think of it as a you know a full time job or your your main thing that you did would be um, taking a leap of faith. that I don't think I, I'd be Comfortable making, especially having children to support. Mm. But I, I think it's more than just a hobby. But it's something that you do because you love it. I think. I mean, for me, that's the that, that's the reason why I do it. I just I, I really enjoy the writing. Um, the one funny thing, of course, is that over a period of it might take you years to write a book and edit it. You have complete control over the words. You can cut things. You can rearrange them. You can re redo it however you like. As soon as it's published, you you cease to have any control over it at all. It goes out into the world and becomes its own thing, and and that's it's a funny experience when you get to that point. Um, What was your, um, you know, the the thing you're doing out of the the joy of the creation of it, suddenly has a completely different relationship to you because it's now an artifact that's in bookshops, and um, you know you have to go to writers' festivals, which Mm. is a huge amount of fun meeting other writers and, and um, talking to them, that they're the people who more than anyone else in my experience and, and unsurprisingly understand what that experience is like. But your your relationship to the work changes as soon as it's published. And so for me, coming back to the idea of, you know, is it, it's more than a hobby. It's something I'm kind of almost compelled to do because I love doing it. Um, but I could never think of it as my main job. So I, when people ask me, I say, well, my day job is I'm a lawyer. hmm And that's quite a consuming job. So,
0: um,
1: I mean, I think, the other thing I think is, you know, if you were just stuck at home or up in your garret with your typewriter writing day after day after day, I personally would go mad, I think, with that degree of isolation. So one thing that I think sustains me as a writer is the experience that I get from being at work and being surrounded by people. Um, I find that energizing.
0: That's funny she should say that. I mean, one of your characters in particular experiences that isolation. It does have a profound psychological effect on this character, um, and that psych- that 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 effect doesn't sort of amend itself for quite a large chunk of the book. Uh, just drawing on that character in particular, without giving much away. Any particular uh, day job research go into the character of um, Will uh, for the duration of the book, or? Uh, did you was that leap of faith uh, research or or what what went into yeah, his sort of osmosis?
1: So he he was a character. Funnily enough, um, he was a character that I had in mind right at the start as someone who who I personally would find likable but frustrating. Mm-hmm. And that was my attitude towards him as someone that, that I would like but who would keep doing things that that you know I found annoying because he'd be making bad decisions. And the journey that he ends up going on through the book is is one that I hadn't thought of at the, at the start at all. It was just the way it went once I started, and and he encounters a particular side of life about which I had to do a huge amount of research um, to 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 make. He, I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but he, he 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 describes himself. I think I don't think it's too much of a problem to say this, but he describes himself as a recreational ice user. Right, and the question is, well. You know what is such a person in our society? Because the image that you get through the media um, is of people who are kind of falling out of the, you know, falling off the edge of society um, because it's such a pernicious, dangerous drug. And yet here's somebody who's saying, "Well, that's not the way I see myself." And the question is, is he is he right in the way he views himself? Is he not right in the way he views himself? But trying to get a handle on the experience of his use involved a huge amount of research that I had to do, which was quite challenging. Mm. Um, And whenever you write about something that you don't have first-hand knowledge of, there's always this lingering doubt of, of, well, is this convincing and will it be convincing to somebody who would be in a better position to to know that I am? And his experience is a really interesting one to write because as I went through that, I thought, well, how do I try to embrace his, his understanding of what he's doing? Um, and and I, you know, I, I hope I succeeded in that. I don't know what your experience was of reading it. If you found that, yeah, um, well, I found really, it really shocking or not.
0: Yeah, no, I I didn't. It was it was it was believable in that. Um, uh, I certainly wasn't expecting it, and then it kind of all made sense. I mean, his isolation in general from his day job and the 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 yearning that he had for you know a love that's unattainable it it, it kind of made you know someone who doesn't have access to technology kind of it kind of fit but as i get you know this is this is a perception that i'm guessing at as well you know i'm am I'm, I'm in your hands trusting your your instinct yeah. <laughs> painting the painting the, the picture as as correct and i believe that i i bought it i bought it on but i i do have to ask about Justine's Role as a child refugee advocate, um, the acronym Free All Refugee Children. <laughs> did that become the the acronym is FARC and is referenced throughout the book uh, for for those who who will pick up the book and read it. <laughs> Where did that? Is that just what, what's that? Is that you and your mates coming up with that? What's all that?
1: That that was I, I was trying to come up with some kind of genuine term for an organisation that could exist that advocated <laughs> in the way that she did, and, but that also had that kind of, a, a bit like get-up, but, but a bit cheekier. Sure, sure. Uh, and, and, and that sort of, because she, at that point, I think she's in her late 20s, she's probably like 28 when she's the program director
0: right. of that yeah.
1: outfit. So so she's, and she's very social media savvy as well, and her attitude is, and it's a play on the Colombian guerrilla outfit as well. Yes, um, the, yeah. The, fuck, so, or the FARC. So that, that came about, um, I, I suppose out of a desire to, to, to think of something that would be you know, mildly comic, but, but, it's, and it's a funny thing about the way you write something two or three years later, you can't even remember right. what it was that, okay. that, that led you to do it. And, and you, and you're in no position to judge whether it's a good idea or a bad idea to have that as, as that is hilarious. <laughs> um, so that's, that's, how that one came about.
0: So it's almost as if there's t- there's there's multiple authors really because you've got the Richard McHugh from five years ago beginning the project and then a different Richard McHugh taking up the mantle five years later and, and uh, sailing the
1: ship in. Totally. And in fact, it, it's even one of the weird things is you come back to something that you've read, written maybe a year or two before and, and this the writing of this book was disjointed just because I had various professional commitments and, and it was difficult for me to do that. So you come back sometimes two years later and you're reading a passage, and you don't actually know what's going to happen. I mean, you, you, you do it you, you do in the most general sense, but in terms of the language and the detail, it's quite funny to turn the page and say, oh, is that what happens in this book? It's a very strange
0: experience. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Can I ask, I mean, a previous guest on on this show was um, Kate McClimate. We had a lovely, uh, really great conversation about a couple of months back, and she makes a cameo appearance in the book, uh, albeit indirectly, um, did you do you know Kate? Or what was the decision I, I, there? I,
1: I, I do know Kate. I've, I've known her just professionally because I've seen her in the courts for sure. years. Sure. I, I, she for a long time did a lot of reporting on defamation um, cases as well as the as well as the investigative stuff. Yeah. And I used to when I was a junior barrister, I did a lot of defamation work. I did loads and loads of those cases, so I would just see her around. I've known her for ages. And Kate had read the first book and told me she liked it, and when it came time to have an investigative journalist in, in the second book. And if this is years ago, I sent her a message saying, are you happy to be in, in this book as a cameo? And she said, sure, of course, why not? It'd be fun. So so, so that's where she appears. And, and that's probably as truthful as anything you can get in, the, in that book because she really would be the kind of person you'd reach out to try to speak to if, if you're in the, the position of the character who's doing
0: that. Oh, that's absolutely right. And the funny thing was, I mean, having... Spoken her on that one occasion in that interview, um, and we talked about her methods and uh, how she sort of disarms uh, her potential, you know, her, her potential subjects with kindness. I can imagine her in those phone calls that happen in particular sites <laughs> and her demeanour coming through in a very pleasant, overly pleasant manner. And uh,
1: it was. Well, really I, I, I could, I could hear her voice as I was as I was typing those parts. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, that, something I do want to ask you, and this is the wrong way around, of course, for a podcast, I suppose. No <laughs> problem. You is, my my favourite character in the book is Leanne, who's the one who speaks to, to McClymon. And she's um, she, she's a character who is sort of self identifies as a single mother, uh, an older single mother, um, who's got grown-up children, but that's a, a way of viewing herself. When I started writing the book, the first time she appears is through Will's eyes and, and you get very much his perspective on her. And, and he, like everyone else in the book, underestimates her. And then as I wrote the book, I realized that I'd been underestimating her a bit as well. And she ends up being my favorite character by far. Mm. Um, and I suppose the question for you is, do, do, you, do you have the sense that everyone is underestimating her in the way that I did as I wrote it? Or, or do you... You know, how do you perceive her? Because she's one of those characters that you learn a lot more about as the time goes
0: by. Yeah, well, look, without her character, there's no linchpin for your final, you know, the 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 drama that comes towards the end of the book. Like, she's absolutely pivotal in it. And there are two, in, to your question, there are two instances where um, she is, uh, uh, what's the word that you used? Um misjudged is that the word underestimated. underestimated the first one is that she conducts uh, she does something for her son so she does something for will that yeah. is out of character from her like you said from will's eyes in in the in the course of the book and um and it, it's it's a it's a life lifelong it has a it has a it's an act that has lifelong consequences not lifelong but prolonged consequences for her so that's an underestimation that 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 comes in that I wasn't expecting, but obviously, and we've alluded to it, but I don't want to sort of draw attention to it. She then engages in a whistle blow that 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 um, gives her a sense of thrill, takes her out of her the monotony of her life, and stops her from being a prisoner. And I've, I'm not sure now that you know there's a bit of there's a dis- bit of distance between when I would finished the book and our conversation now. I can't say that I did underestimate those actions. Maybe I did at the time reading them, but now that with there's some distance, I'm not sure that I did underestimate that based on the fact that she would do something dramatic, if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, well, so that's, that's a very interesting thing because as I started writing it and the first time she appeared, the, the, the two things that you just referred to were not in my mind at all. Right. And so I really think that I, I underestimated her myself. Okay. And then that, I think it's part of the reason why I'm so fond of her um, because, as you say, she is, I mean that the thrill-seeking part of her appeals to me quite a lot as well because that's just not what you're not what you're imagining um, the first time you come across her.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I do feel sorry for her. <laughs> I mean, she's, yeah. she's got a shit deal, but uh, it looks like she gets her own at the end. And um, and uh, you know, maybe the, <laughs> look. If you're if you're so fond of her, if you were to hit pen to paper again five years from now, who knows? You know, I, I, there might be something there for you.
1: Oh, well, I guess that's true. Um, <laughs> it's a funny thing about characters so there's there's one tiny appearance in this book of a character from the first book just mentioned in passing um, and, and the, the, the character who wasn't punished sufficiently by, by some people's um, estimation in the first book was going to get a, a couple of pages in the second book where he was going to be terribly punished and that was all, all just, it was me doing that really um, bloody mindedly I suppose but mm. It, it ended up not fitting into the book and, and it hit the cutting room floor. So um, the, the idea that you can have echoes of characters from one book to another is appealing to me. Just I suppose it's the idea that even though their book has gone out into the world, you still have some control over their
0: Absolutely, life. yeah. Would that be your way of maybe rewriting the ending to your first book, do you think?
1: Well, well, I can tell you what it was. The, the, the character um, was... was going to have been found in a hotel room with an ice pick in the side of his head, right. um, which, which was, which was given um, in the most unequivocal um, kind of basic instinct sort of way, um, yeah. the, puni- the punishment that he'd missed out on the first time around. And I, and I think that was me being, as I wrote it, um, a little bit churlish, really. So, sure. <laughs> it, it, was gonna be, it was more going to be, well, you want a different ending, here it is. Yeah, enjoy that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I had I, I hadn't really thought of it in the more general way in which you're describing. You you could, in a way, offer people completely different things.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, exa- exactly right. Now, I wanted to um, end our conversation on a quote from you. I mean, I just uh, in addition to the book, I just read a couple of articles on um, uh, about you from interviews that you've given on the release of your first novel. A direct quote from you is, I love – and you come from a family of, of barristers. I know that your siblings are barristers as well. I love being a barrister uh, and I love I love what we do, as in being a barrister. So I can't imagine giving up the law, but I love to do both, as in writing. Is that, again, in the foreseeable future of Richard McHugh?
1: Yeah, at the moment, I can't see a change. I I, I can't. One of the funny things about the law, um, particularly about being a barrister, is, uh, and this is a shocking thing to say about oneself, but I like to fight. And it's one of the few jobs that you can do which gives you a legitimate outlet for the enjoyment that I have in fighting. So I, I think I would find it really, really difficult to give up. I've been doing it for more than a quarter of a century, and, and you're not doing it bloody-mindedly. You're doing it as, as part of a system of justice. So mm. it's, I mean, there's a, there's a higher purpose for it, ultimately. But there's a streak of my personality that, if it didn't have that outlet, um, would miss it very much. So I, I can't imagine giving up that part of what I do at all. And equally, I don't want to give up writing because I really do love it, and it's a completely different thing to do with your mind. So I I think I'm still in the same position I was, that must be seven years ago. And I think I'll still go on doing both.
0: Well, um, I really took a lot of pleasure out of reading your book, and equally as amount of pleasure having our conversation today, Richard. I really appreciate your time, and uh, hopefully we can do it again.
1: Oh yeah, that would be fun, and it's been really good fun today, Jim. So thanks for having me. On.
0: Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Good luck with the with uh, with the book as it is. It's in, it's available in all bookstores now, and I, I wish you all success. Thanks. See you
1: later. Bye. See you later.